This is a uh, big deal for me, the, the the guest that I'm about to introduce to you, Stephen Mosher, president of the Population Research Institute. I uh, He doesn't remember, and I am, I'm not troubled by it at all, <laughs> but I had him on about 30 years ago on my radio show, at least 30 years ago, because uh, he was a, a revelatory, even a prophetic voice about what was happening in China. He was allowed into rural China. I remember I remember your articles were in National Review at, at the beginning. Is that correct? And yeah, I don't... I don't uh, okay. yeah. Wall Street Say Journal it. and New York Times editorializing on behalf of this uh, American scholar, myself, who had revealed massive human rights abuses, including forced abortions, performed in the seventh, eighth, and ninth month of pregnancy and the killing of babies after birth. So uh, it was a rare time of uh, unanimity between the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, But Stanford didn't listen. Stanford decided that uh, I was not to receive my Ph.D. and I was not to go on to teach uh, at the university level. Uh, But uh, I found something better to do with my life. You certainly have. And, folks, a a major work uh, uh, is out now. I love these politically incorrect guides. I have learned an immense amount from them. And you have now written, when was it published? Just this week, last week, last month? The the hot off the presses. The publication date was this week. Great. uh, So the politically incorrect guide to pandemics. Uh, I, I love it. I, I, I. there's no doubt it is now on my list to uh, to read because it's you and because it's the subject. So give me uh, give me some examples of a politically incorrect take on pandemics. <laughs> well, first of all, people need to know that uh, China is the great breeding ground of pandemics, especially under the Chinese Communist Party. That back in 1958 there was something called the Asian flu. It killed a million people around the world. Why? Because when it originated in South China, in the province of Guizhou, in the southwest of China, uh, the Chinese Communist Party covered it up. It did not see fit to notify the World Health Organization that there was a dangerous new virus on the loose. The tens of thousands of Chinese were dying, and it became a pandemic and spread around the world. Uh, Only later uh, did genetic evidence trace it back to China. Uh, far too late to do any good in terms of curbing the pandemic. Same thing happened again, same playbook, 1967-68, with what was called the Hong Kong flu. Now, Dennis, it wasn't the Hong Kong flu. It was the mainland China flu. The people of Hong Kong were furious at being having it mislabeled. But China did the same thing. The Chinese Communist Party did not notify the World Health Organization, covered up the epidemic, let it spread around the world until over a million people died. But the real, the real troubling episode and the one that should have clued us into the danger from China as the great breeding ground of pandemics happened in 2002-2003. This was the SARS-1 a coronavirus epidemic. Uh, we're living through the SARS-2. SARS-1 happened, uh, began in November 16th of uh, 2002 when a snake seller in the southern Chinese province of Guangdong became ill with a coronavirus, a snake coronavirus in that case, not a bat coronavirus, and he died fairly quickly after that. Uh, Thousands of people died in China in the months following. And what did China do? The Chinese Communist Party hid the breakout of this deadly coronavirus. Uh, It silenced whistleblowers. It did not notify the World Health Organization. And it was only when Canadian intelligence, thank God, Canadian intelligence services picked up wire transmissions in China about the spread of a dangerous new uh, virus that the world went to China and said, what's going on? And China belatedly admitted that it had an epidemic on its hands before it became a pandemic. Otherwise, millions of people would have died in 2003. And what did China say? What did the Communist Party say when it was called on the epidemic? It said a foreign agent has released a bioweapon in China. That was their cover story. Now, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the playbook they followed in 2019? It certainly does to me. Do these pandemics begin in China deliberately or carelessly? Well, that's a very interesting question. The, 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 uh, 
the pandemic in 58 and 68 and the near pandemic in, in uh, SARS-1, 2002, 2003 were true zoonoses, right? This was an animal virus that managed because of close contact with humanity in China to cross over the species barrier and in, infect human beings. I, you know, I went through a, a PhD. All right, hold on. Keep, keep, keep that thought because I, I want to remind people what the book is, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. It is up at DennisPrager.com. I'm going to continue with Stephen Mosher uh, in a moment. I love these politically incorrect guides, and you can't get more important than this subject right now. Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager with you. If you would ask any seven-year-old, maybe six-year-old, maybe five-year-old, if we have fewer policemen, do you think there will be more bad things happening? Everyone who understood the question would say yes. It takes a college degree to teach you that it is a good idea to have fewer police. It takes college or high school to teach you that the fewer people in prison, the safer the society will be. It is part of the upside-down, truly upside-down world in which we live, and the power of media and schooling to have people believe what is upside down is apparently infinite. So two days ago, a book was published, Criminal Injustice, what the push for decarceration and depolicing gets wrong and who it hurts most, Rafael Mangual is the author. He is the head of research for these issues of of justice and policing at the Great Manhattan Institute. The book Criminal Injustice is up at DennisPrager.com. Rafael Mangual also does a couple of videos for PragerU, so he's no stranger to me, although I don't think we've personally met till now. Rafael, welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here. And I have been on this show once before, uh, uh, shortly after one of my Prager videos. That's right. Now that you mention it, I blew that one. Anyway, welcome back. No, that's all right. Thank you so much. Thank you. So you come from, uh, we were talking before, Dominican and Puerto Rican uh, ancestry, in the minds of, of left-wing Americans, Hispanics are supportive of them in the belief that there were too many people in jail and there were too many policemen, etc. Do you, do you believe that that is true? I don't, certainly not from my experience as a lifelong member of the Latino community. Um, I can tell you that there's uh, very much a disconnect between what the dominant narrative is in, in kind of mainstream media America about crime, justice, policing and incarceration and what, you know, people who live in low income minority communities um, actually believe. And, and there's, you know, frankly, a lot of support for traditional institutions of law enforcement uh, to play a major role in the provision of public safety for communities. and. I think lots of people, certainly lots of members of my family, lots of friends uh, are dismayed by what they're seeing when they read these stories of really heinous offenses committed by people who have, you know, 15, 20, 30 prior arrests, in some cases, 100 prior arrests, who have, you know, five, 10 prior convictions who are out on parole, out on probation, out on pretrial release. You know, they they always ask the same question, which is what on earth were these individuals doing out on the street? And what I think that reveals is uh, a sense of belief in the role that, you know, uh, policing incarceration uh, should play in, in providing public safety to all of us. So who demographically supports the idea of fewer people in prison and fewer police? Well, I think, you know, the idea of fewer people in prison resonates a lot uh, with uh, a large segment of the general public 
based on a, a lack of real knowledge. So there was a really interesting poll that came out in 2016. I think it was a Vox and Morning Consult poll. And it found you know, widespread support for decarceration and criminal justice reform and sentencing reforms. Uh, but that, reform, that, that support for reform was eroded significantly once the questions got a bit more specific. For example, when you ask people whether or not they supported releasing people who were convicted of violent offenses, support goes down through the floor. When you ask people whether or not um, they support releasing people who have been convicted of nonviolent offenses, but who pose a high risk of reoffending if released, again, supports, support goes through the floor. The reality is, is that the vast majority of people incarcerated in the United States today are people who have not been denied second chances, but have been given second, third, and tenth chances. Right? The average release state prisoner has more than 10 prior arrests and about five prior convictions. Uh, and also, you know, the recidivism rate of our, our state prison population hovers between 80 and 83 percent. In other words, the vast majority of people incarcerated in the United States today are precisely the sorts of people that the vast majority of Americans of all demographic groups say they don't support releasing. And so I think a lot of people think that they support decarceration on some level. But the second you get into the details and tell them what that would actually entail, um, that that support erodes quite a bit. I mean, you, you hear so much. Uh, about the United States being unfavorably compared to Western European democracies when it comes to incarceration, right? You hear we've got 5% of the world's population, 25% of its prisoners, you know, the UK, Germany, all, all incarcerated rates far lower than the United States. That's true. Um, but we also have a lot more serious crime. And so for us to actually uh, achieve parity with our Western European counterparts on the incarceration front, that would require us to release about 75 to 80% of people incarcerated today. Now, when you consider the fact that more than 60% of the state incarcerated population is incarcerated primarily for a violent or weapons offense, these are not the sorts of people for whom release is a risk-free endeavor. And when we talk about the risk, it's important to talk about who bears that risk. And it's not all of us evenly, right? Crime is very hyper-concentrated, both demographically and geographically. So take a city like New York, for example, a minimum, a minimum, of 95% of all shooting victims every single year for which we have data, we've been tracking this since 2008, are either black or Hispanic, almost all of them male. It's one of the starkest, most persistent racial disparities in the criminal justice data. And you hear almost nothing about it from the left wing uh, uh, sort of reform camp. And, and so what I wanted to do with this book was sort of highlight the risks associated with the decarceration program, with the depolicing program, but also really implore people to understand and internalize that these are risks that we are imposing on communities that most of us don't live in, most of us would never send our kids to school in, and most of us would never dare walk in at night. And, and I, you know, I, I really feel for these communities. I have experience living in these communities. I have family in these communities. Uh, I think it's really long past time for, for Americans to really understand what exactly is entailed in living in a place like West Garfield Park in Chicago which has a murder rate of 131 per 100,000 compared to the national murder rate of about six. So in effect, the people who want decarceration want the murderers of minorities out of prison. Yeah, I think, you know, that, that that's certainly one way of putting it. You know, I don't think they, they genuinely believe that. I, I do like to assume the best. Wait, 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 forgive me. How does that, well, I don't understand that. What does it mean they don't genuinely believe that? Or, or, or is the I, concept I, of truth now dead as well? I think they have convinced themselves that a large-scale decarceration program is in fact congruous with public safety. And they really twisted themselves up into pretzels to do this. And so I, I found uh, your, your intro uh, a bit amusing because you're right, it does kind of take a, an advanced degree to, to come to terms uh, with this kind of idea that you know, belies both common sense and, and you know, the data that I go through in the book. But there is a literature that shows that for some people, for some people, incarceration can produce higher rates of criminality upon release than we would have seen had the individual not been incarcerated. And so, you know, if I can take just a couple of minutes to go into this, I, I do think it's important for people to understand because it's an, it's an argument that the left really leans into. So the decision to incarcerate is almost never random, right? So when we're trying to assess the impact of something like incarceration, we want to figure out uh, you know, a population for people for whom the decision to incarcerate is essentially random or quasi-random. So what these studies do is that they find a population of offenders who are engaged in conduct that wouldn't 
it isn't so bad that it would obviously lead to their incarceration, but isn't so uh, uh, low level that it would obviously lead to their diversion from incarceration. And once you've identified that pool of offenders, then you look at judges and you categorize them as either really lenient, really harsh, or somewhere in the middle. And you take out all the judges in the middle and you only look at the marginal offenders who have been assigned to harsh judges and lenient judges, and then you compare their outcomes. And when you do that, you do find some evidence that for these types of offenders, incarceration produces worse results in the way of, uh, of more crime, which in, in turn harms public safety. The problem is that the left has grafted this research onto a body of offenders that the, 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 the individuals uh, that are studied in these papers don't actually represent, right? There's a huge difference between the typical person incarcerated in jail or in prison in the United States today and the sort of offender that constitutes uh, the body of individuals analyzed in these sorts of studies. And so I think what we're seeing is just a kind of confirmation bias at play where they take this body of Good. We're going to explore that it. further. All right. The, the book, folks, is Criminal Injustice, Why the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing, What It Gets Wrong, and Who It Hurts Most. Rafael Mangual, book is up at DennisPrager.com. Hi, everybody. Speaking with Manhattan Institute scholar, they're great Manhattan Institute. They publish City Journal, which is one of the one or two most important journals being published regularly today. The book is titled Criminal Injustice. Injustice. What the push for decarceration and depolicing gets wrong and who it hurts most. Rafael Mangual book is up at DennisPrager.com. You can watch him and me at Salem News Channel. I want to understand this because I didn't fully understand this. There is evidence that de- that incarceration increases the recidivism rate. In other words, putting people in jail increases the likelihood of of that person committing a crime as opposed to not imprisoning that person. So let me get this clear in my layman's brain. Is that true for murderers? Is that true for rapists? Is that true for uh, child molesters? Is that true for burglars? Uh, Who is it true for that if they were not imprisoned, they'd be less likely to commit the crime again? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not hearing him, Sean, uh, but there's no sound. One minute, Raphael. Sean, can we get sound? Well, uh, are you hearing me? That's a good question. I am. Yes, I am hearing All right. you. All right, so I don't know why we weren't hearing you. It drives me crazy. Go ahead. So it is not true for all of those groups that you described. It is only true for a very, very small and unique slice of the criminal offending population. And the problem is, is that the studies that have shown this, which are interesting, right? These are these are interesting, worthwhile analyses. They've been sort of launched and, and, and grafted onto the broader population of criminal offenders to make the case for much broader scale decarceration. You see, the left has figured out that they can no longer get away with the lie that our prisons are teeming with low-level, nonviolent, you know, uh, offenders who just got locked up for 20 years because they possess a small amount of marijuana. They have or because they're black, or, be, or because right. they're a minority. Exactly. They have been forced to acknowledge that prison is largely reserved for chronic offenders who commit serious violent crimes and who pose a real risk of committing violent crime in the future. And so they needed another way to justify the large-scale incarceration uh, program that it would take, again, to get us on par with other Western European democracies that we're often compared to. And how do they do this? They do this by you know, expanding uh, uh, the population of people for whom decarceration might make some sense, right? I don't think and who are, right, here, so who are, these, who are these people? These are, you know, very truly low-level offenders, often first- or second-time offenders, people who don't have chronic criminal histories, who don't pose a serious violent risk, 
who have, you know, substance use disorders and, you know, maybe are engaging in low level theft uh, uh, to sustain those habits. But these are these are not the sorts of people that prison is reserved for. People have it in their minds that incarceration is a common response to criminal behavior. It's not. Only 40 percent of state level felony convictions result in a post conviction sentence. And, and that's felony. That's felony. I, and that's felony. Right. That's exactly right. Oh, oh okay. So for the group that I listed, murderers, rapists, burglars, uh, child molesters, uh, spouse beaters or partner beaters, that is not true for them. Is that correct? I just want to. Correct. Okay. So so we can move. Okay. Right. I recently spoke to a group of high school students, uh, most of whom loathed me. It It was a fascinating experience. And one of their arguments, which was amazing to me, that in high school, this had already become a a widespread argument among high school kids, that in order to get more blacks into prison, they changed the rules some decades ago about which drug crime one would go to jail for. Would you would you expand on that for me so I, I would know what they're referring to? Yes, I'm very familiar with this argument. So this is, you know, an argument about the distinction in sentencing uh, disparities for, for crack and powder cocaine. Uh, crack cocaine has long been associated with high use rates in, in, in low-income black communities, whereas powder cocaine uh, is, is more commonly found in upper-income white communities. And so what we saw, particularly with the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, this was a piece of federal legislation uh, signed by Ronald Reagan in 1986 that established a 100 to 1 sentencing ratio disparity between crack and powder cocaine. Now, lots of people look at this and they say, well, here, this is prima facie evidence of, of bias against low-income black communities on the part of the federal government with respect to its drug war. And we know this because crack cocaine uh, is more prominent in low-income black communities. What they don't tell you, what they don't tell you, is that 16 of the 19 members of the Congressional Black Caucus at the time co-sponsored, not just voted for, but oh god, I wish I knew that when I spoke to these high school kids. <laughs> That's exactly okay. right. All right, and and why did they co-sponsor it, knowing that it would affect blacks more? Because there was a lot of violence associated with the crack trade that, again, was disproportionately affecting low-income black communities. And the good law-abiding people in those communities were tired of it. You can go back. So is there, okay, forgive me. So is there more violent crime associated with crack cocaine than powder cocaine? That's exactly right. And that's why that 100 to 1 sentencing disparity was put into place in the first place. Now, we can argue about whether that was a justifiable response to those disparate rates of violent crime associated with those two trades. But the idea that this was motivated by racial animus, I think, is just completely at odds with reality. And it's not just the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. A great scholar named Michael J. Fortner wrote a fantastic book called Black Violent Majority that details the role that the black community played here in New York with the development of the Rockefeller drug laws, which uh, developed similar mandatory minimums for crack cocaine compared to powder cocaine. And what you'll find is you can go back to 1990, and on PBS you can watch William F. Buckley debate Charles Rangel on ending the drug war, and you will hear Charles Rangel, the black congressman from East Harlem, say that he supports life in prison for certain crack dealers, right? So there was a lot of support within the black community for harsh penalties for crack cocaine dealing. The idea that this was just motivated by racial animus is not true. It's historically false. What what do you know to be the data? I'll get your answer when we come back, but I want to pose the question now, lest I forget to pose it when we return. What is the number that you have come to believe in of incidents of white police killing unarmed blacks. We'll get to the policing issue, therefore, via that question. The book is Criminal Injustice, Rafael Mangual, the author. It is up at my website and, of course, Amazon and everywhere books are sold. Hi, everybody. 
The book is Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Rafael Mangual of the Manhattan Institute is the author. The book was just published, and he's on with me. I want to review something with you and then get your answer to the number of unarmed blacks killed by police in a given year. I, the reason I want to review it is to make sure I heard it right, and I'm going to make an, a point that I think my listeners will find more interesting than you do, <laughs> but I'll say it in any event. I don't have a particularly good memory, but I, I have a good memory for one thing, and that is concepts, as opposed to names, for example. I'm not terrible on names. So I think I remember everything you answered on the left-wing argument that is so often offered, how racist it was to change the laws on incarceration with regarding to drugs. Powder cocaine was the preferred form of cocaine for among whites, and crack cocaine among lower-income blacks. Lower-income blacks were incarcerated for much longer time because they were the users of crack cocaine, but crack cocaine is associated with violence far more than powder cocaine, and 16 members of the Black Caucus voted for that change in 1986 or 87. I don't remember the year. Did I get that exactly right? Almost exactly right. It was 16 of the 19 members of the Congressional Black Caucus co-sponsored, not just voted for it, but co-sponsored that legislation. Good. It is now etched in my mind. When the left offers that argument, they must know this. So I, I, this is not at all a rhetorical question. I'm curious what you'll answer If, you, if they're told this, do they say, hmm, good point, I won't use that argument again? Or what, what will they say if offered this argument? Sometimes they will concede the point or, or shift into another one. I, one response that I've got that was always curious to me was, well, you know, this was unwitting support. They didn't really know what this was going to do until later. And I think that's actually uh, insulting of the intelligence of, of the members of the black community who I think knew exactly what they were doing and had good reasons for doing so. Again, in hindsight, we can argue about whether we overcorrected in the punitive direction with respect to drugs. But, you know, the idea that, that these were just kind of unwitting uh, uh, people who had been hoodwinked is, is uh, I think, an insulting one. Well, I, I could even argue, let's say they knew, yes, Tragically, blacks tend to use crack more than powder cocaine. Crack cocaine is associated with violence. Ergo, there will be more blacks incarcerated for drug use than whites. But it will save black lives if we do that. Why couldn't one argue that? I think that's exactly what the argument was back then. And if you, you know, uh, again, just look at the arguments that were offered out of the black community in the late 1970s through the 80s with respect to crack cocaine, that's exactly what they were talking about. There was a, a complete erosion of any sense of tolerance for the harm that drugs were doing in low-income black communities. By the way, is is that law still in place? Greater incarceration rates for crack no. So the, so that disparity was eliminated through federal legislation, uh, I think, in 2010, and it was made retroactive shortly thereafter. So lots of people have since, uh, uh, you know, uh, commission, uh, petitioned courts for earlier release uh, than they otherwise would have had and have been granted earlier release uh, on the grounds that that law had subsequently been changed. And did, do we know the recidivism rates of those people? Unfortunately, we don't. And this is one of my beefs with a lot of the, the federal sentencing reforms that we've seen, including the First Step Act, uh, which was signed under President Trump. Uh, you know, there are some good things in there. There are some uh, things in there I think may be misguided. But to me, it was a real missed opportunity to, to actually impose some requirements to get the data so that we can actually track the outcomes that we care about so that we can have a better idea for future decision making of what kind of risks we're imposing and where those risks are going to be most pronounced. 
So before we go, I want to get the time frame. Sean, what is our time frame? Okay, so now when we come back, Raphael, <laughs> you'll tell me the answer uh, to the, the question of unarmed blacks killed by police. Uh, but uh, I'm so happy I learned this uh, drug issue because it's so often been raised. Criminal Injustice is the book. And it is up at DennisPrager.com and available anywhere you buy books. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. I'm Dennis Prager, final broadcast from Miami. Been spending a week here. I will talk to you about it at length, or at greater length, next week when I return to California. What I've been doing here with Jordan Peterson and some others, it's been a very moving, powerful experience. You will get to experience it. Later in the year, you know, when I return to California, not only is there no joy in me, there's there's a certain dread. If you would have told me when I moved to California in my 20s that I would ever not be excited going back to California, I would have thought you were crazy. If you ever need an example of the left ruins everything it touches, just say California. Of course, you could say America, you can say culture, you can say schools, medicine, but just say California. California, in in the American mind, meant freedom, excitement, joy, joie de vivre, joy of living. Now it means fecal matter in the midst of major cities. The emblem of California today might well show poop, human poop, on the street. How do people vote? It's such a riddle. How do people vote for what ruins their lives? I... I, I, You have to, there is only one, excuse me, there are two possibilities. There is a nihilist streak in you, like in George Soros, like in, as Marx quoted, the devil in Goethe's Faust. Everything that exists should be destroyed. That some, some people, Antifa, that is what Antifa believes, for example, that is what AOC believes, much of the Democratic Party believes, but most people who vote Democrat don't believe that. So the only other possibility is brainwash. I see before me an utterly deteriorating state. It is less free, it is less joyful than Florida. There is no comparison. The the joie de vivre in, the, in this state it, it, it is just remarkable. I never spoke of Florida in laudatory terms. I never spoke about it at all, to be honest. And I've been to Florida about 50 times. My my beloved Aunt Chippy lived here. I, was, I flew here at seven years of age and f- then flew back to New York where I, where I grew up, also at seven years of age. In those days, if a seven-year-old wanted to fly or the parents wanted the kid to fly, they took him to the airport, said goodbye at the gate, and then somebody picked the kid up at the destination. I don't know for whom it is worse. Kids today who have never seen how wonderful America was or older people like me who saw how America was wonderful and now see what is done to it today. It's not perhaps an important question, but it's an interesting question. 
So I have no joy in returning, except obviously my wife, it's a rare occasion. She couldn't come with me. I, it's a big deal to me to have my wife come with me wherever I travel, at least for more than a day or two. But it just it didn't work out this time. This was a sudden invitation. And obviously, I'm very happy to see her. I'm very happy to see my friends, my, the community that I have helped build up in making a synagogue there. But the thought of going back to California from Florida is like going back to Eastern Europe from Austria during the Cold War, which I did very many times, and that's why I use that analogy. Wikipedia editors feverishly change article on recessions to match Biden talking points. There is such a perfect example that we now have of the left-wing nature of the Democratic Party and all of the media, New York Times, Washington Post. They are Pravda to the Democrats. They are Pravda to leftism. Pravda was a Soviet communist newspaper. A recession had a definition, not anymore, because they would have to admit that there is a recession. I'm not sure it means that much. The average American who is suffering economically is not sitting down and saying, gee, I wonder if this is a recession, that I can't afford what I am buying and used to buying, that my rent has gone higher and my income has stayed the same, and that everything pertaining to energy, which means everything, is so much more expensive. Gee, I wonder if it's a recession. (laughs) Not sure the average American gives a hoot. I don't even particularly give a hoot. I just give a hoot about truth. An edit war broke out on Wikipedia, Breitbart reports this week over the definition of recession. As the Biden administration and the corporate media take the unprecedented step of denying the U.S. is in recession, even after two consecutive quarters of negative growth, which has been the definition of recession for a very long time. More than 70 edits to the page about recessions were made before the site locked the entry, preventing further changes. The edit successfully de-emphasized the broad consensus definition of recession, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, instead parroting the Biden administration's talking points. So let me tell you, it's very important that you know if you are looking up some historical facts, if you are looking up, as I often do, uh, the keys of, let's say, all of Haydn's quartets, Wikipedia is fantastic. I sent donations to Wikipedia in the past until I got locked out of my own page, which has such a distorted view of who I am. I can't edit my own page in Wikipedia. I'm a well-known conservative, so uh, we don't want to have too much truth on that page. Yes, people don't know that. Wikipedia is useless on anything. It's as, it's as useful as the New York Times on any controversial issue or controversial person. Editors of the leftist-dominated online encyclopedia are pushing a definition of recession that is unusually broad and favors the Biden administration's claims that no recession has occurred. Why did they tamper with it at all? Why didn't they leave recession as it is? This definition from the National Bureau of Economic Research claims that a recession, quote, is a significant decline in economic activity spread across the market lasting more than a few months. What was until recently the broad consensus on the definition of a recession, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, remains at the top of the page, but editors have been attempting to remove it. This definition is also described as the United Kingdom's definition. Hmm. The article continues to note further down the page in a section on the definition that in a 1975 New York Times article, economic statistician Julius Shiskin suggested several rules of thumb for defining a recession, one of which was two down quarters of GDP. In response to the edit war, senior Wikipedia editors have locked the page on recession, 
preventing users from making further snap edits to it. Anyway, so it is. I'm going to look that up, see what uh, what appears there. Anyway, I welcome you to the show, Dennis Prager Show. Yesterday I was reading to you and I didn't get to finish because I had to really terrific... Uh, I had terrific guests on yesterday about what's happening in Portland public schools where they don't use girls and boys anymore. Mom and they don't use mom and dad. They don't use Mrs. Miss, Mister, or Miss, or even Ms. They don't use boyfriend and girlfriend. Instead, they have people, folks. They're big on the X, like in Latinx, guardians, mix. So everybody, there's no Mrs., there's no Miss, there's no Ms., there's no Mr., there's now Mix. The attempt to obliterate gender. I I may be the only one, at least the only one I know of. I, I, I never think I'm the only one. There's a lot of bright people out there. But I'm the only one I know of who said that when they said gender doesn't matter in the battle for same-sex marriage... It was a very slippery slope. Dennis Prager. I have achieved the status of a, what do you call it, Sean? What am I again? A promo code. Wow. That, that's the, very few people can say. I think there are more, there are definitely more astrophysicists than promo codes. And you don't you don't think no 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 human promo codes yes I know Sean you should go in the punishment room for that doubt all right I uh, normally don't take calls this early but a happiness hour B I I really want to reemphasize the point that I made about going back to California so let's go to David in Los Angeles hello David. Hi, Dennis. How are you? Well, thank you. Thank you so much for taking my call. Yeah, you mentioned earlier about uh, every time you now that you come back to L.A., you 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 feel an unease about it, and I I really share that sentiment. I I used to live in Paris, uh, France. Um, I've been back for seven years, and I was always always excited to come back here. And now, with all all the nonsense going on, I. You know the expression, uh, there's a thin line between love and hate, and uh, that's usually what we apply to, to couples, uh, to people that are in love. Well, that's how I feel about L.A. I used to love it here, uh, the weather, the lifestyle, uh, the beaches, and now it's, uh, I, I just can't stand it here anymore. Yep, so uh, th- this is the, look, it's the first time in California history it has lost population. It's it's actually lost a seat in, in the house because it's lost so many people. And remember how many people move here uh, who are brand new immigrants, legal and illegal, especially illegal. And I don't know if they qualify to vote or not, So I, but they, they do, and I don't know if they qualify in the in the census, but whatever it might be, we are losing population in that state for good reason. It's my bond with people that keeps me there. It's not even the weather, and the weather is the most beautiful weather in the world, with the possible exception of Perth, Australia, and Pretoria. Is it Pretoria? Well, let's see, in South Africa... Mm, I think it's Pretoria. There are very few places with the weather of of the west coast of the United States, and especially California. Uh, Here's another one. Steve in Arcadia, California. Hello. Hey, Dennis. Thanks for taking my call, a fellow traveler in the figurative and literal sense. Um, I just spent five days in Key West, and I've traveled to Florida many, many times over the last 20 years, 25 years, because of family and stuff. I moved to L.A. originally in the 80s from the Midwest. Um, I was intoxicated with the place for so many years, but I'd say 
pretty much since the pandemic, coming back to Los Angeles is the most depressing experience that I've ever had in my life. Wow. All right. So, my friends, I, I represent a lot of people. I never thought I would talk this way. The first time I went to Los Angeles, I was 25 or 24 years old. I was a New Yorker. One of the, I don't, I don't know how many vivid memories any of us have of things way in the past, but the, this is a vivid psychological memory. It was at JFK Airport, and I looked up on the screen for flights, and I saw a flight, whatever it was, American Airlines, Los Angeles. I had a palpable sense of excitement. I am finally going to California. The ability of the of left-wing nihilism to destroy is nowhere more obvious than in California. I was reading to you about the Portland schools. It is an amazing thing the Portland school issue, what they're doing. Flags, let's see, what else do they have here? Students are shown photographs of gender nonconforming individuals encouraged to celebrate the flags for non-binary, genderqueer, genderfluid, and two-spirit identities. For some students, the subversion of the gender binary might also involve a gender transition. The curriculum provides a detailed explanation of how to, quote, pause puberty through hormones and or surgeries, unquote, and advice on adopting a non-binary identity and set of pronouns. Our vice president, a truly low-life human being, a nothing I I played the tape of her this week at a meeting, of course, masked, masked, unbelievable. Two and a half years after the, the pandemic began, she's masked. And she announces, she like, it's unbelievable, she announced her preferred pronouns to the group of people who were gathered with her. By the end of fifth grade, the curriculum explicitly asks students to make a commitment to change. According to the dictates of gender ideology, students receive a list of six commitments, including I commit to learning more about what LGBTQIA2S plus words mean and how they have changed over time. I commit to learning about the history and leadership of black trans women. Boy, if there's a subject that has been indefensibly ignored in elementary school curricula, it's black trans women. Do they learn anything about grammar? Do they learn history? Do they learn how to write properly? No, but they will learn about black trans women and parents will send their kids to Oregon schools. Back in a moment. The Dennis Prager Show. One of my top assistants notes the following. When Reagan, Wilson, and Duke Majin were governors of California, no liberal announced how much they dreaded returning to California. That's right. The Democrats are leftists now, and they destroy everything they touch. Hey, so listen to this, my friends. One of the one of the claims of the left that I heard when I was in graduate school at Columbia University in the 1970s, it's a long time ago, which confirmed to me that I was in an institution uh, dedicated to lying. Columbia has deteriorated exponentially since I was there. And it was uh, not committed to much truth when I was there. So one of the lies I was told, and every student is told this to this day, 
at Columbia and virtually every other university. Blacks cannot be racist. That, along with poverty, causes murder and rape and other violent crimes, and that anti-communists were wrong, uh, and that men and women were basically the same. You have to understand, there's more sick stuff, there's more lying today on campuses, but this is not new. Only the extent is due. We were not told men give birth. We were told there's no difference between men and women, and that led to men give birth. But one of the big one was one of the big ones was blacks cannot be racist. A claim of one hundred percent absurdity, a one hundred percent lie. It's not partially true. It's entirely false. Anyone can be a racist. It's almost like saying a black can't be a bank robber. Black can't be a racist. So listen to this. This is uh, brand new news, all right? What's, What's the date on this thing here? The 27th. Two black teenage girls in New York City were arrested Tuesday, that is, uh, let's see, Friday, three days ago, charged with hate crimes over the brutal attack on a 57-year-old white woman riding a bus in Queens earlier this month. The New York Police Department said that a 15-year-old girl and a 16-year-old girl were arrested on Tuesday in the confines of the 102nd Precinct. They each face two counts of assault while carrying out a hate crime and aggravated harassment while carrying out a hate crime. Their names were not released by police due to their ages. I don't quite follow that. I mean, this is a serious crime. NYPD released a video and a photo showing three black girls walking down a city street earlier this month. About 6.50 p.m., police said, the three unidentified individuals, now two are, approached the 57-year-old female passenger on the southbound MTA bus in the vicinity of Jamaica Avenue and Woodhaven Boulevard, struck her in the head with an unknown object, causing a laceration and bleeding. They carried out the attack while making anti-white statements, police said. God, even Fox News capitalizes white. Oh, my God. The individuals fled on foot, and the victim was removed to Jamaica Hospital. The woman received three staples on her head because of the injuries. The victim, 57-year-old Jill Lacroix, told the outlet she has three biracial children, is a grandmother of five, and currently works as a bartender. The woman recounted the attack to the newspaper, saying one of the teenage assailants with green hair began shouting that she hates white people the way they talk and accused her of being a fan of former President Trump. I will read to you more of the things that they said to this woman when they beat her. So tell me, is it a lie, or is it partially true, or fully true, that a black can't be a racist? Hmm? We'll put this piece up at DennisPrager.com. We should put it, we should juxtapose it with blacks can't be racist. 